With all the rain going on outside, Hugh, I'm not sure about this lightning rod. <laughs> but, but thank you. Thank you very much. Uh, my favourite band is the Irish band U2. Their music has been a significant part of, of the soundtrack of my life. And recently, amidst the pandemic, two members of the band reworked many of their songs and recorded them as acoustic numbers, which reflect the Irish folk heritage that they have. And to publicise the reimagined songs, they invited David Letterman to Dublin to do an interview and TV special based around the first public performance of those songs. And during the interview, the topic of nicknames came up. Now, the two members of the band being interviewed were Paul Hewson and David Evans. But you may not recognise those names because they are more known by their nicknames. Nicknames that they picked up in their Christian counterculture group in the mid-1970s. Paul is known as Bono, uh, which is short for Bono Vox, which is Latin for good noise or good voice. Uh, and that's from a hearing aid shop in the Dublin High Street. And it's quite a good name uh, for a lead vocalist, although apparently it was supposed to be quite sort of sarcastic when he first started. And David Evans is The Edge, which is really apt as he is one of the sort of pro most progressive guitarists in the world today. And David Letterman asked them the obvious question, why the uh, other two members of the U2, Larry Mullins Jr. and Adam Clayton, didn't have nicknames. And the reply was their original nicknames were Jam Jar for Larry Mullins Jr., and Mrs. Burns for Adam Clayton. Neither of which stuck, nor in actual fact sounded really good for members of a rock band. Whoever heard of a rock bassist called Mrs. Burns? They just didn't fit. Well, this Easter uh, season, from Easter Sunday right through to Pentecost at the end of May, we are looking at the witnesses to the resurrection. People who met the risen Jesus and whose encounters we have recorded in the Gospels. Encounters which help us to have confidence in the physical resurrection of Jesus and help us to understand what it means for us today. In today's reading from John's Gospel, we are looking at Thomas. Thomas, who we are told was also known as Didymus, which means the twin. And by the way, that is not a nickname as Thomas itself comes from the Aramaic word for twin. So it's just really the Greek translation. But he has picked up a nickname, which has made its way into our modern vernacular. Doubting Thomas, right? And it's used in a negative way to denote, denote, denote a skeptic, someone who's reluctant to believe. And it's a nickname that he does not, in actual fact, deserve and one which does not fit the gospel narrative of his encounter with the risen Jesus. Where he moves, yes, from not being easily persuaded to being the first to actually articulate what the resurrection means. And thus forms the high point of the whole of John's gospel. When he sees Jesus raised from the dead, he proclaims, My Lord and my God. So let's have a look at the passage 
and have a look at this encounter and this witness. Firstly, who is this Thomas guy? Well, Thomas is mentioned only eight times in Scripture, in the Gospels and in Acts. And in the Synoptic Gospels, that's Matthew, Mark, and Luke. And in Acts, he's only mentioned in lists of the 12 disciples. So he's a sort of also-ran. <clears throat> and then in John, he's also mentioned as one of the 12. And he's also mentioned as being present in John chapter 1 on the shores of Galilee. An encounter with the risen Jesus that focuses on Peter's restoration. And Lorne's going to speak on that next week. In John, he also takes a more central role at the raising of Lazarus. Where in John eleven sixteen, Jesus speaks that he's going to Jerusalem in the face of all these threats that he would be killed. And Thomas says, well, let us also go, that we may die with him. Which shows us the great depth of Thomas's commitment to Jesus. He has his hope so tightly caught up in Jesus that he at this stage is willing to go and die. There's an intensity to this man and his faith. And then at the Last Supper in John 14, as Jesus talks about going to uh, prepare a place for his disciples, you know, in my father's house there are many mansions, uh, and then talking of coming back to take them to be with him, Thomas asks the obvious question, but Lord, we do not know where you're going, so how can we know the way? Again, it shows that he's really wanting to know and understand what Jesus is saying. It shows the depth of his faith. And Jesus' reply, of course, is the last I am saying in John's Gospel, where Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but through me. Thomas and we receive this assurance that Jesus is, it's in the person of Jesus that we are put right with God. And in the passage we had read to us today, we have Thomas's encounter with the risen Lord. So let's have a look at that. In the beginning, we have this account of Jesus appearing to his disciples, and we're told that uh, uh, Thomas was not with them. And there's no reason is given for his absence. So it's really hard to argue from silence. But perhaps he was away by himself, wrestling with having deserted Jesus and not died with him like he had vowed. Uh, and also wrestling with the fact that this hope of a way of truth and life that led to God had ended in the tragedy of the cross. Like the other disciples, he was wrestling with the despair of shattered hope. And when he finally joins the disciples, he's greeted by their joyful affirmation that they have seen the Lord, but is not willing, as Ian Blakelock puts it, to hazard his life on a false report, on a mistake, a hallucination, or fabrication, or even an imposter. I don't know about you, but there is something real and honest and very human about Thomas's reaction. And the other thing is it sort of fits into our 21st century scientific mindset as well, you know? It kind of fits into to, to where we're at, um, which makes Thomas a good witness. For us. And of course, there's Thomas's response unless I see the nail marks in his hands and feet, 
and put my finger where the nails were and put my hand into his side, I will not believe. Well, we're told a week later that they were in the house again. And this time, Thomas was with them. The door was locked and Jesus appeared in their midst. And once again, we are confronted by the fact that Jesus' resurrection body is somehow different. That it's not as limited as our bodies are. And Jesus is able to be present with his people physically, even in a locked room. He's no longer confined by space and time. Remember, resurrection is something brand new. It's a new creation. It's not reanimation or resuscitation. It's something new and different. But it is Jesus, because he greets his disciples with his normal greeting. You know, it's almost sort of ho-hum, peace be with you. That's just the way that people greeted one another in those days. And he looks straight at Thomas and addresses Thomas's doubts and conditions almost word for word. Put your finger here. See my hands. Reach out your hand and put it in my side. And addresses Thomas's affirmation that unless I see, I will not believe by saying, stop doubting and believe. And often we think that doubts are not a good thing, that they separate us and drag us away from God. But you know, I love the fact that Jesus is able here to address Thomas's doubts and all his questions. God is not put off by our doubts if we are open about them and open to seeking the truth. You know, they can actually lead us into a deeper understanding of and also a deeper encounter with Christ. And Jesus shows us his care for Thomas. And I think, you know, when we are wrestling with things, when we are wrestling with doubts, you know, we can actually trust that Christ cares for us as well and is able and willing to reveal more of himself to us. Thomas now responds, my Lord and my God. Now there's a famous painting by uh, Reformation artist Caravaggio called The Incredulity, Incredulity of Thomas, which has him touching Jesus, examining the evidence as he wishes. But in the gospel, we're, we're not told that he does that. In fact, it's sort of left open. We simply know that he responds to seeing Jesus with my Lord and my God. Thomas is the person in John's gospel who fully understands what the resurrection means. Now we are used to that affirmation of the deity of Jesus. You know, we have 2,000 years of Christian tradition, of Christian worship. But remember, Thomas is a first century Jewish man. So for him... This is astounding. This is mind-blowing. This is, you know, wonderful and profound, amazing, shocking even. That he is willing to affirm that Jesus is divine. My Lord and my God. That the resurrection validates who Jesus said he was. His unique relationship with God as God's son. You know, I think part of Thomas's reluctance to believe was the enormity of what it means. To believe that Jesus rose from the dead challenges us and calls us to ask the question, who is Jesus? And you know, Thomas gives us that most amazing, wonderful and challenging answer. 
Jesus is the unique son of God, was with God and was God before creation. As the writer of John's gospel told us way back in the beginning, Jesus is God made flesh. Thomas, according to Paul, Metzger takes us through a very human process. One that Elizabeth Elliot says Christians go through when they face difficult faith crushing times. We go through despair, okay? The pain and suffering of a crucifixion-like occurrence. Despair. Ouch, it really hurts. To doubt. Well, where is God in this? You know, is, it, is God good? Is it just a dead end, a dead hope? And finally, on to devotion, as God responds to us and reveals himself to us. My Lord and my God. That's the process that Thomas works through. It's the process very often we have to work through as well. Old Testament scholar Walter Brueggemann sees the same pattern in the Psalms, where he says there are laments, Psalms of disorientation, when it's like we've been picked up by storm waves and spun round and round and round. You know those times? And, uh, and you don't know which way is up. And then he also says and identifies that there are psalms of reorientation where the psalmist has found themselves confronted and comforted and assured because of the abiding presence of God. I mentioned you 2 at the beginning of this message and they sing a song called Stuck in a Moment. And I'm not going to sing it for you because well, my, my voice is getting a bit cr crackly at the moment. Uh, which articulates the danger we can face as we work through this process. Basically, you can get stuck in it. You can get stuck somewhere in that process. And you can't get out of it. But if we trust the risen Jesus to meet us in that process, we can be moved to that place of devotion, to transformation. Now, we don't have a record of Thomas in Scripture after the Ascension and Pentecost. The Scriptures, that's Acts, and the Epistles follow the spread of the Gospel westward into the Roman Empire. That's Luke's, um, that's Luke's focus. And he follows Peter's ministry and then Paul's. And it, it's, it fits our Eurocentric understanding of the spread of Christianity. But that affirmation, my Lord and my God, spurred Thomas also to devote his life faithfully to telling people about Jesus Christ. Jesus crucified and raised to life again, his Lord and his God. Uh, Thomas, we are told uh, from other early church sources, went east. He went outside the Roman Empire with the gospel. The church in the Assyria region, that's Syria and Iraq, claimed that Thomas was the first to proclaim the gospel in their region. He's also uh, seen and known to have taken the gospel to India. You know, to India. Uh, not only to North India, but also South India. And there is a church in Sri Lanka, an early church in Sri Lanka, which chases their heritage back to Thomas. Now we have a group of Indian Christians who have migrated, immigrated to Whangarei and they often use our church hall to celebrate birthdays. And on a Sunday if you walk in and the place smells of all Indian food, they've been there. But they are part of a church in India that says they've been there from the beginning. Thomas 
as the one who shared their gos- the gospel with them. Thomas may have also gone to China with the gospel. We do know that he died by being run through by a lance. He was martyred in India in 72 AD. You know that he was willing to die for Christ. That he's considered the patron saint of India and that that affirmation of my Lord and my God took him way out of his comfort zones, way out into the world to tell the story of Jesus. He was a faithful apostle, convinced of who Jesus was. You know, that's the challenge of that affirmation, my Lord and my God. And that's the challenge it brings to us as well. If Jesus is raised to life again, then we are confronted with who he is, and it changes everything. The uh, passage does not finish with Thomas's affirmation. Jesus gets the last word. He says to Thomas, you believe because you've seen... And then it's almost as if Jesus turns from focusing on Thomas to look uh, beyond them to the people that were the original uh, people that this gospel was written to. And beyond them to you and to me. If this was a film, Jesus suddenly breaks the fourth wall and looks at the audience. And he offers a beatitude, a blessing or a happy saying. Happy are those who have not seen and yet believed. Blessed are those who have not seen and yet believed. You know, that's us. That's us. That's Jesus looking at us and saying, blessed are you. We who have not seen believe. We have the witness of Scripture. The witness of an empty tomb. The witnesses of people like the Twelve, of Mary Magdalene and the other women, of Peter and Thomas. And we too have come to believe in Jesus, crucified and resurrected, to believe in Jesus as our Lord and our God. And because of the resurrection and Jesus' ascension, you know, we have been given the Holy Spirit and the living Christ dwells within us. And then the gospel writer sort of, you know, stands up and, and walks on stage. It's like, the, it's like the playwright coming and walking right into the middle of the play. And, and he stands there with Jesus and he addresses uh, his readers. And he tells us the purpose that he's re- written the gospel. John tells us that he's chosen these specific things that Jesus had done and said so we would believe. You know, the gospel is a series of signs and wonders and Jesus' affirmation and teaching based on them so that we may believe. Believe in Jesus, the word made flesh. Believe in Jesus who was crucified. Believe in Jesus who rose to life again. Believe in Jesus who is the Messiah. Believe in Jesus, God's anointed one. Believe in Jesus, the Son of God. Believe in Jesus as our Lord and our God. And through that belief, that we might have life. We may not see Jesus physically raised from the dead, but we are not called to a blind faith. We have these witness accounts that point us to Christ and invite us to believe and have life. And this series on witnesses to the resurrection is designed to give us confidence in the physical resurrection of Jesus, that you can believe, 
that in your own life, we too can proclaim my Lord and my God. That's the challenge of Jesus raised to life again. And I don't know if that's going to send you all the way out to India, but I do know that it invites us to step out and to live a life of following Jesus where the Spirit leads. My Lord and my God is not just something that we simply sort of put into the soundtrack of our lives, but is the very essence of our life, is the very focus and driving force of our life, where we find life itself. Abundant, full, and eternal life in and with the risen Christ, our Lord and our God. Amen. Amen.